0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend, your glossy audio supplement to all the news from Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. I'm Simon Spungin. Before today's show, a reminder, if you haven't already done so, to listen to the latest episode of Haaretz Weekly with Amir Tibon, Judy Maltz and Stav Shafir. And now, on with the show. A new Polish law, which makes it all but impossible for Holocaust survivors to sue for compensation for property in Poland that was confiscated by the Nazis, has just come into effect. Passed over the summer by the Polish parliament and approved by President Andrzej Duda, the law has sparked the first major diplomatic challenge for the Bennett-Lapid government. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid recalled the Israeli ambassador to Warsaw in protest and described the law as bordering on Holocaust denial. Duda defended it, saying that under Poland's existing law, false claims often lead to innocent Poles losing their property and criminal groups becoming rich at the cost of tens of thousands of people thrown onto the pavement. Joining me today to discuss the law and its impact on relations between Jerusalem and Warsaw, I'm delighted to welcome Haaretz correspondent Ofer Aderet, and from the World Jewish Restitution Organization, Gideon Taylor. Thanks for joining us, Ofer. My pleasure, Simon. It's, Ofer, before we talk Poland, uh, I understand there's been some news in terms of German reparations. What,
1: what can you tell us about that? Um, The Claims Conference each year published the new list of uh, some new groups of uh, Holocaust survivors or families of Holocaust victims will get some uh, more money compensation. So from this year on, also survivors of the siege on Leningrad uh, will get uh, some compensation Uh, of a few hundred euros. This is very significant, of course, for every individual, Mm. but this is not like a breaking news because every year they are able to add some uh, more uh, participants who enjoy this compensation and we should all be... uh, Grateful
0: for this kind of work. Hmm. So, Ophel, I spoke earlier this week with Gideon Taylor, the chair of the World Jewish Restitution Organization, about the new law, the the news from Germany, and anti-Semitism in general. Uh, Let's hear what he had to say. Uh, Gideon, thanks for joining us on Harrod's Weekend. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, So uh, for any of our listeners who might not be aware of the World Jewish Restitution Organization, uh, can you tell us briefly what it does and, and what its goals are?
2: It's the umbrella body that brings together organizations, survivor groups and other Jewish groups from across the Jewish world and Israel together who organizations who are united to press for justice for Holocaust survivors and restitution from countries uh, of Eastern Europe and Western Europe. It's a sister organization of the Claims Conference, which negotiated with Germany. The WGRO is responsible for negotiations in Eastern European countries, um, like Poland and Hungary, Romania, as well as Western European countries.
0: Hmm. Was the WJRO uh, involved in the recent breakthrough for survivors of the the siege of Leningrad?
2: So the Claims Conference, uh, which of which I serve as president, uh, was responsible for that negotiation with Germany. Very important breakthrough, and it's part of the Claims Conference negotiations of adding survivors, including survivors who've been excluded from previous negotiations and previous compensation payments very important historically, and also for those Holocaust survivors who survived terrible conditions in Maningrad, also some survivors who were hiding in France and Romania who hadn't been eligible or had been eligible just for one-time payments. Now they will be eligible for uh,
0: pensions. Mm. So this new Polish law, uh, Gideon, how much of a setback is approval of the law for Holocaust survivors? Uh, and there is, and how many people are we talking about?
2: You know, it's very hard to know how many people because there's never been in Poland a property restitution law. Unlike other countries, virtually all the other former communist countries that are in the European Union had some kind of restitution law or compensation law. And some of them were comprehensive, some of them were kind of medium, some of them were a bit weak, but all of them tried to have some kind of law. Poland alone has no law. And there were attempts, there were various drafts that were introduced. And for one reason or another, over the years, they failed. So Mm. Poland stands out. And we don't know how many people, because many people, there's no way to come forward. But we certainly know that an awful lot of Jews who are alive today are descended from Polish Jewry. It was the cradle of Polish
0: Jewish life before the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, the Polish government would argue that it's exactly this problem, that there has historically been no restitution law and it hasn't been legislated that led to the need for this law to be passed. Now, uh, could it have been done differently? Right. What, what
2: Poland says logically is we need to have legal peace. We need to have legal certainty of title, a completely reasonable position for any normal democratic rule of law society. However, what every other country in Eastern Europe did was they said, first, we have to address the history. We have to address what happened. We have to have a program of restitution or of compensation. And then after that program, we pay out to former owners, we compensate them, we acknowledge. Then we move on to the question of legal certainty of title. Poland is basically saying we're ignoring the past, we're ignoring what happened, and we're just saying we need legal certainty of title. Well, you can't do that. You can't cover over the past because the past won't go away and we won't give up and Holocaust survivors won't give up and children of Holocaust survivors won't give up because you can't build a future and build a firm foundation when you haven't
0: addressed the past, when you haven't built what's addressed what's there, what's happened. Hmm. So Is this law, as the Israeli government claimed, anti-Semitic in your opinion, or just misguided and misimplemented? It doesn't
2: recognize history, and the history of what happened in Poland is a very sad history. It was also a great history of a Jewish community that there was thrived for a thousand years, and then there was a mass destruction of that Jewish community. And with them was taken their property, huge loss of life, uh, massive destruction of Polish Jewry um, and all the property that belonged to them. And the critical reason why it's so important for Poland to address this, it's as important for Jewish history as it is for Polish history, because if Poland doesn't address that history, doesn't understand what happened to the Jews, understand what property was taken. And we're talking about properties that was taken first by the Nazis, but then by the communist governments. So this was this was property that is today in Poland standing there. And people have gone back to visit their homes or their businesses that benefited Poland in all the years since the fall of communism. And Poland is saying we're not going to address it. It's not important.
0: Mm. So is it over and done with if diplomatic pressure from the great United States failed to persuade the Poles that this is a bad law? Is there anything that the WJRO and similar organizations can now do? The WGRO won't give up. We won't give up. Holocaust survivors won't give up. And I,
2: I think any committed person who cares about history is not going to give up. And Poland can take this step today. And today is today. Tomorrow will be tomorrow. And there will be new steps and new developments. This is not an issue. Unfortunately, it's an issue of huge priority and importance in time. But if it takes longer, it will take longer. But we won't give up because uh, ultimately, I think we have an obligation. We have an obligation to those who perished, and we have the obligation to those who survived, who are still alive, and those who were alive and have passed away. And Holocaust survivors have said this. You know, when people, survivors, speak to me, they say it's not so much about the money or the compensation you might get. It's about the principle, it's about recognition. And, you know, if Poland says that we won't address the issue of a home that stood there, or a synagogue, it's denying that history. It's denying the history of that person, of that family, of our person's descendants, and of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people can't accept the denial of our history, because that's who we are. And we have to understand our history, we have to make sure there's acknowledgement of it. As we move forward, building a new uh, growing Jewish community, we have to address our past and Poland, likewise, can't build a new Poland without addressing its
0: past. So uh, as far as you're concerned, it's worth the diplomatic fallout between Jerusalem and Warsaw? I think
2: countries and, and governments and Jewish organizations have no choice to speak truth. We can we can ignore it, we could let it go, but I think sometimes there's issues of principle. There's issues of what's right, and this is just wrong. And and polls, and there are many polls who know it. Poland used to say that there was a way to recover property because you could go to court uh, and get back your property, you could go through the court system. Now, that was never true because you would have to prove that the confiscation was carried out in a way that was technically incorrect. That was the only basis before this law that existed. But Polish governments used to stand up and say, um, yes, but you can go to court. Well, there was no basis to go unless you could prove a technical fault. This legislation now wipes out even that limited way of recovering property. And, and you know, there was a draft of legislation that was introduced by uh, this government in a previous incarnation, but by the same officials and the same uh, party that would have provided some form of compensation not mind you for people living outside Poland but for people inside Poland and at the time the deputy minister of justice who introduced the legislation said it is a shameful that Poland has not addressed the issue of property restitution since the end of the fall of communism so this is even understood by the Polish government and Polish officials so everyone knows that this is closing something that was never addressed and we hope ultimately, that continued political advocacy, a continued united front um, from governments, um, and also an atmosphere in Poland that hopefully will will ultimately improve, will lead us to a time where this issue will be addressed. Mm. Uh, Gidon, we're going to
0: wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So, offer tell me a little bit about the background to this new Polish law.
1: Where did it come from? What's the goal? And is it popular in Poland? So, first of all, yes, it's very popular under the so-called nationalist uh, government, uh, right-wing government, conservative government. It is uh, uh, very popular among the Polish uh, nation, among the Polish uh, people in the street, no matter if they are, by the way, right-wing radicals or just uh, right uh, center like uh, people from the Likud party in Israel. Mm. Um, under the new law, uh, we're talking about uh, outstanding claims for the restitution of property seized during the Holocaust and after during the communism. And from now on, all new claims will be dismissed and you will not be able to appeal of administrative decisions made over 30 years. So in practice, it will make it impossible or almost impossible for Jews to obtain a restitution or compensation for property, which against the law was taken away during the Holocaust or the communist periods from them or their family. If you want to talk about the background, we should uh, mention a few uh, aspects. One of them is historical, second is political, and of course, also financial. Mm. Let me start with political. As I mentioned before, the Polish government uh, from 2015 till now is a nationalist government, we can say, and uh, it has the mission. And uh, the mission of the Polish government, and you can see it in many uh, different decisions, the mission of this uh, um, right-wing conservative peace party um, is to emphasize the Polish victimhood. And the Polish victimhood can be seen in different aspects of their activities. And this new law is only one of them. So, um, of course, they would be opposed to restitution because this restitution is just one part of a much broader nationalist so-called agenda. Mm. So, um, but this is just like any other nationalist governments around the world. They, 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 they emphasize the fact that the uh, Polish nation, Polish people were, in fact, victims of the Holocaust, victims of the uh, Second World War and If yes, if so, why should they give any single Zloty um, to any other victims? So when you are knocking at the door of of Polish people and saying, look, my grandfather used to live in this house, give it back to me or give me some money as compensation, they would send you to Germany and say, look, we are victims just like you. Go and ask the money from Angela Merkel. So in, in this point it's become very sensitive because, as I mentioned, we're talking about money, we're talking about national pride, we're talking about history, which is indeed complicated. So when you take all these aspects, the, the, the bottom line is very, very complicated. Mm. Is
0: there also a, a complication because the, the nationalist populist government in Poland it does have far-right elements, perhaps even
1: anti-Semitic elements? It is very important to mention and to emphasize that the Polish government, although being nationalist and far-right radical, is not anti-Semitic. The fact is that uh, it's, mostly, it's, it's almost the opposite. They would like to emphasize the fact that lots of Polish people saved the life of Jews.
3: Hmm.
1: that uh, the, Poles wasn't, the Polish people, the Polish nation was a nation of uh, righteous among nations. This is their false uh, narrative. So if this is the case, they could not be anti-Semitic uh, at the same time. So no, they are not. And, but, and uh, is it
0: fair to say that on other issues like memorializing victims of the Holocaust, that Poland is
1: cooperating and does um, memorialize these victims? So yes, of course, in recent years, it's became like a national campaign in Poland to uh, memorize the victims of the 3.5 million Polish Jews who perished during the Holocaust. They are being treated as victims of Polish nation. They are not being treated only as Jews. They are being treated as part of the Polish family, part of the Polish nation. And this is why I always emphasize that it would not be fair to uh, name uh, these right-wing radicals or right-wing nationalists uh, uh, as anti-Semitic. It's far more complicated than the ability to label them as anti-Semitic. No, they have their own national pride and it is not uh, to do with anti-Semitism.
0: So, but beyond national pride, offer do, do the polls have a point with this law? It, it was there a problem with uh, individuals being asked to compensate the families of, of, of Jewish survivors?
1: So, um, yes. In recent years, uh, due to uh, some criminal elements which enter this uh, world of restitution, criminal elements, of course, not Jewish one, and sometimes also not Polish one, but really I'm talking about organized crimes about mafia. Mm. They were able to, uh, for example, to uh, pretend to be the children or grandchildren of a Jewish old lady from Australia or from Canada or from New Zealand, uh, showing uh, fake um, uh, evidence or certificates as if she or he gave them the permission to uh, ask for restitution on behalf of her name. There were a few cases like this who made huge headlines in the uh, Polish media. And of course in Israel and the Jewish world, almost no one heard about it. And um, in this uh, aspect, one of the um, reasons for the new law is to try to make an order. Uh, to make an order in a very complicated matter, which is not only restricted for the Jewish matter, but for restitution of houses, of shops, of fabrics, which belong also to other citizens of other nations in Poland. So yes, Poland definitely has a point, wanting to put an end uh, for a never-ending story of uh, people from different uh, countries coming uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, and now eight years after the Holocaust and claiming the restitution of the uh, shop which once belonged to a great-grandfather. So I can also understand that uh, they could not allow themselves to to, to be put in such a situation that suddenly uh, so many years afterwards, someone would come and uh, uh, would force uh, some uh, Polish citizens, which has nothing to do with the whole complicated story of communism and Nazism, suddenly to leave their homes. And yes, there were stories like this, of innocent uh, Polish citizens who were forced to leave home or who were forced to suddenly uh, pay high, very high rents mm. instead of a compensation mm. uh, to, uh, to the new owner of the building who came suddenly. And um, the Polish authorities wanted to put an end for, 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 for this situation, and I can fully support and understand them. Having said that, uh, it's not uh, um, true to think that right now millions of Jews all over the world will uh, jump on the Polish uh, Minister of Finance and demand uh, compensation in order to... Um, um, to, to harm the situation of the Polish economy. And here I'm quoting, of course, the anti-Semitic uh, mm. views, which you can hear in the far right wing in Poland. So it's not the case. We're talking about between a few hundreds and a few thousands uh, cases, which are still being, uh, which was supposed to be heard by the Polish courts all over Poland. And I'm not sure if it's not possible to find a better solution than this law, maybe involving some um, other institutions, maybe European Union, maybe um, in other level, in order to, to put an end that all sides will feel that they are satisfied and that they got what they deserve um, and no one will be hurt. I don't think it's such a big deal to, to solve. It's much more emotional than practical, if you ask uh, me to to summarize. It's much more to do with emotions and it's a symbol than in practice. And I could tell you the story of my own family. Um, My grandfather from my mother's side, Shmuel Shmuel Shmuel, came from uh, Warsaw and they had a beautiful summer house in Falenice, which is a suburb of Warsaw. I, as the grandchild would be very happy to be the owner of such a place now, it's a beautiful place. I could go to vacations there and so on. But personally, I would never even think to uh, to claim uh, this place right now because so many years passed. I don't know who is now living there. It's not my business. I'm a proud Israeli citizen, so I can also understand the view from of some of the of the Polish people saying that. Uh, Maybe we should put an end for for, for the opportunity to to obtain uh, restitution after so many years. Maybe we should try to open a new chapter and put it aside. Maybe mm. uh, Ya'el Lapid
0: is also a, a, a proud Israeli citizen. Orfel. Um, <laughs> uh, he accused. He came right out and accused the Polish government of, of of anti-Semitism. This is a pretty bad diplomatic crisis. No.
1: Well, if you mention now the Israeli side. Israeli politicians, let Mm. me um, talk about the very sensitive issues of uh, 1948, if I may. So uh, we should remember that Poland is not alone in opposing restitution. Mm. Israel also stole property from from other people. In the Israeli case, we are talking about uh, some innocent Palestinians. Uh, You can call them Arabs, you can call them Israeli Arabs, but let's say Innocent people who were forced to flee in the Independent War 1948. And since then, their homes and land have, have not been given back, and they were not uh, given any compensation. Uh, the opposite, there is a law in Israel which. <laughs> actually does exactly what we are criticizing right now about the Polish system. Mm. As, as of... Haaretz
0: pointed out in, a, in an editorial uh, over the summer, pretty right. much saying, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone.
1: Exactly. So, so I, I would not dare to compare, of course, uh, the victims of World War II and the, the Holocaust to the victims of, of the War of Independence. It's two different cases, but The bottom line is that we're talking about in both cases about innocent citizens, some of them, okay? Let's say maybe not all of them in the case of 1948, but some of them or maybe most of them were just innocent people like me and you who had nothing to do with politics. And Mm -hmm. Even if their leaders or, if you can say it, were opposing the the Israeli uh, right, um, the, the Israeli War of Independence, still, it doesn't mean that we should not recognize the fact that we, Israel nation actually stole, stole their property during this war. So if we would like to criticize uh, Poland, how they are dealing with their own uh, past, uh, we should also uh, you know, uh, be able to make a brave move and start thinking about uh, our own uh, history as well. It is hard. It is uh, very sensitive, but uh, I think it's healthy for our society to deal with it. And maybe thanks to this uh, sensitive Polish law of restitution, we could also start to deal with uh, some of our own inner matters, which has nothing to do with uh, Poland and Holocaust, but with our own local uh, uh, bloody history. Maybe, I don't know.
3: Mm,
0: that, that seems uh, a, a fair way off. Um, I, I, in the meantime, this diplomatic crisis, Ophel, the Americans have got involved, uh, the European Union may be getting involved. Is there any practical ramification for this crisis? Or is this, uh, like the whole affair, is this an emotional crisis as well?
1: For now, as we speak, as you know, um, the Polish ambassador to Israel uh, was basically kicked away, kicked out. He's not Mm. uh, anymore in position, so there is no Polish ambassador in Israel. And uh, so the relations between Poland and Israel uh, suffer very much from this. But this is in the level of um, diplomacy and politics and, uh, you know, high level. I just came back from a terrific, wonderful three weeks or one month vacations in Poland. It's a beautiful country. It has beautiful people, and as an Israeli and as a Jew, I enjoyed very much um, going through the mountains near the borders uh, with Slovakia, and and the weather is great. Hmm. Um, If I would not be a vegan, I would also say that the food is great, but I could not. But what (laughs) I'm trying to say, Simon, is just that uh, when you are judging the reality the perspective of a person and not from the perspective of a nation it's much more simple and as i said before yes i would be very happy to be a proud owner of the apartment which was stolen from my grandfather but i'm not going to take it into the court and i'm not going to fight over it and i don't put it as a as an obstacle uh, for me to enjoy the polish uh, landscape and have a wonderful vacation in poland so the personal um, level I don't think the whole affair makes any change. Uh, it is good for people like Morawiecki, the Polish prime minister, or the people like Klapid or um, Bennett uh, to have some uh, victory uh, with their own voters, but uh, I don't think it should influence the, the relations between the two nations. And I must say that the, during the last years and also in this period of uh, COVID, Still, you can find flights which are fully booked. Krakow, Tel Aviv, Warsaw, Tel Aviv, Poznan, Tel Aviv, and so on. So it means that when you're speaking on the level of the simple people, um, it is nothing to do with with us. It's Mm. something for
0: politicians. Mm. So, Offer, I, I know you have a busy couple of days ahead what, with the the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War and the uh, the declassified documents. So, before I let you go, um, uh, old habits do die hard. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent can we blame. Netanyahu for this crisis? And I'm thinking about the 2018 joint declaration that Bibi signed with his Polish counterpart, which absolved Poland and the Polish people for crimes committed during the Holocaust, uh, and which was described by renowned Holocaust historian Professor Juda Bauer as a betrayal. So did Bibi's pandering pave the way for this law in any way? Absolutely, yes.
1: Netanyahu. And the relations uh, of Israel to Poland during Netanyahu's time uh, was, uh, I would say, just terrible. It was very much close to being—I um, don't want you know—to use uh, harsh words, but it was much close to the far right wing, semi-anti-Semitic views. What Netanyahu did during this joint agreement or joint declaration between the two states in 2018, in which basically Netanyahu and uh, Morawiecki declared that, uh, that they reject the actions aimed of, of blaming Poland or the Polish na- nation as a whole for, 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 for crimes committed by the Nazis. And by saying that, they just forgot so many Poles who were not... Uh, righteous among nations, but rather the opposite. So Mm. what Netanyahu did for these relations was terrible. He preferred to take the uh, false narrative of this uh, peace uh, party in Poland. And yes, of course, as you said, he paved the way for this law and for many others to come. And uh, we should uh, only regret that and uh, Say sorry that uh, this was our leader who made such, a, such an agreement, which is uh, just a shame.
0: Mm. And I understand that the current government is, uh, is reviewing that agreement.
1: The current Israeli government? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Lapid already declared that uh, this uh, joint declaration and agreement is no more uh, relevant, no more active. What does it mean in practice? Because mm. the declaration is, again, it's a symbol. It doesn't mean that uh, right now I have to uh, go to declare this or that. So, okay, so Lapid says that he's not committed, but uh, mm. what Netanyahu did uh, w- was just a shame, and I think it, it made uh, a very bad job to the relations of both nations because it created such a bad atmosphere, not only among scholars from Yad Vashem, but also among Holocaust survivors and the general public, And uh, this is not the way. Uh, This is not the way to deal with uh, sensitive topics like this. This is the opposite way. This is just to take the history and, you know, play with it uh, uh, as a game of politicians. And uh, it should be a shame for what it did.
0: Uh, Ofel, we look forward to uh, reading your continued coverage of this and, and many other subjects. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. Listener, stay with us. After the jingle, we'll be talking television and Jewface with Adrian Hennigan. Joining me now to talk about Ridley Road, a new four-part thriller from the BBC. I'm delighted to welcome Harrods.com's TV reviewer, Adrian Hennigan. Uh, How are you, Adrian?
3: I'm good, Simon. Good to join you again.
0: Well, great to have and, you yeah. back. Thank you. So, Ridley Road, it, it's based on a 2014 novel by Joe Bloom, and it's set in the swinging 60s in London. Uh, but the backdrop isn't Carnaby Street. It's the unfashionable East End of London, where far-right fascism is on the rise.
3: Is it any good, Adrian? Mm, let's start with the easy questions. Eh? <laughs> um if you'd asked me that after I'd seen the first episode, I probably would have said, nah, I'm not such a fan. But actually, after I uh, struggled with the first episode, and then it actually really hits its stride to end the sort of subsequent episodes. Uh, I think, look, on a personal level, I have a, an issue to overcome with anything set in the 60s, <laughs> which, as you say, the swinging 60s It's like, it feels like, uh, you know, it's like Austin Powers type thing. Oh dear. It's dear. It's, it's a BBC, so it's like literally one of the characters says something like, we need to get you a more groovy look. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you cannot get away with using the word groovy and people take this seriously. But actually, once you overcome the kind of the slightly painful way of depicting the 60s, and you sort of see the political side of it, then it becomes a lot more interesting and the characters are more engaging. Uh, Funnily enough, I I was aware of the the novel Mm, by Joe Bloom, but um, I haven't read it yet, but a few years ago, I uh, I came across a a book called uh, We Fight Fascists, which was about a group of basically Jewish vigilantes post-war. Who set up an organization called the Forty Three Group, and they basically, you know, met violence with violence on Mm. the streets of East London, and sort of basically became this almost like intelligence unit infiltrating the fascists. And obviously, there are a hell of a lot post-war with Oswald Mosley and his gang still around, and there was like it was like. If you look at all the fascist groups that are around at the time, it kind of felt like a people's front of Judea kind of thing. There were just (laughs) so many of them. And a little bit in that book mentioned the 62 group, which is the group that's um, fictionalized in Ridley Road. So I was aware of it, and I was really fascinated to see what this this, um, production would do with that. And I think overall, you know, despite my initial reservation, I think it does a really great job bringing it to
0: life. Mm. So It's been described by, by some reviewers as, as, as timely, uh, given the rise of you know, populism, nationalism, uh, uh, far-right sentiment uh, uh, across Europe and, and North America. Uh, does it manage to capture the, the warning element without getting too preachy? I think
3: overall it does. Uh, there was an interesting quote from the... The writer, Sarah Soleimani, I hope I pronounced the name right there, Mm. where she said, um, I made a rule for myself that everything spoken by the far-right characters you could hear now, Hmm. which once you kind of take that on board, then I think you're a bit more forgiving of it, because there are times when you're hearing this, and obviously it's impossible not to be transported to the present day when you hear a fascist say a line like "We're getting Britain back," or "We can finally take our country back," mm. and obviously all of the the Brexit, you know, heavy overtones there. But I think it's a thin line, but it really it does get away with it because I I also think that, that it's, it, there's so many people who don't know anything about this story, who don't know. I mean, we all associate. You know, East London nowadays with this quite kind of hip, you know, very trendy area. But actually, in the sixties, you know, it was still a, it was a very heavily Jewish area post-war. Mm-hmm. It's like sixty percent Jewish, a lot of it. And um, I mean, the the fascists called Ridley Road, Yeidley Road, in their uh, typical way. So this was such a story that needed telling because no one knows about it. And so I think for me, I could overlook any of the problems that the show has really because of the way it opens a lot of eyes to fascism then, fascism now. I mean, there are there are certain people now, pol- political figures now, you kind of find yourself picturing in Ridley Road and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is where you're from. I can see the, the lineage here. And also there was a great, another quote from... Soleimani, where she said, we don't make dramas about Jewish heroes in this country. And actually, I mean, I was, could you think of one? I mean, it's like, yeah, she's right. And mm. it's interesting that she's actually made one about Jewish heroes, but she's she's not made the actual Jewish heroes the protagonists. She's almost like created this fictional character of the uh, 23-year-old a female hairdresser from Manchester, called Vivian, who comes down to London and infiltrates the the uh, fascist gang, the National Socialist Movement, and actually the people who were uh, who set up sixty two group were kind of some of the people who were behind the forty three group as well, and they had this you know, long standing history of fighting fascism. And instead, we get with Vivian's character this this ingenue. Who you know is like shocked, shocked <laughs> by everything happening in London, and then, of course, it suddenly becomes this fantastic spy who uh, can charm can charm this guy called um colin jordan and um he's he's an interesting character because a lot of the characters in the film, the fascists, are based on real people. so Colin Jordan is played here by rory Kinnear, Mm, a fantastic actor Uh, exactly fantastic actor charismatic and of course in most people's eyes most people know him from black mirror Mm -hmm. when he was playing the prime minister and had that unfortunate assignment with a pig and and here he's playing the pig (laughs) but um it's interesting because again Soleimani doesn't want us to just see these fascists as you know oh, my God, what a revolting, disgusting person. He's a fascist. You know, she kind of wants us to feel a little empathy, empathy for him. And, you know, he's like, I've got a young son. And it's, it's an interesting choice because I mean we so often just see these one-dimensional characters and he very much isn't that. I mean, he was a fascinating, horrible figure in real life. He died in uh, 2009. And appropriately enough, was buried on the day of uh, Hitler's birthday. Hmm. This guy was like, I mean, this is what the the show doesn't perhaps do enough of because he was actually, this guy was complete Hitler obsessive. You know, he thought Hitler was the Messiah. And, you know, we can't, we don't get that uh, evil, if you like, about him. So, and I think we could have seen more of that. I mean, it's it's funny because at at one point, one of the characters is railing, of course, against the the Jews and mentions, this is a a very English production, I have to say, because at one point they talk about Tesco, the supermarket (laughs) Mm -hmm. chain being owned by Jack Cohen. Um, And one character says, uh, you know, Jack Cohen, you know, like one of the four Jewish companies that control the world. And I mean, in real life, Colin Jordan had a slightly less fortunate escapade in Tesco when he was uh, arrested for stealing three pairs of women's knickers in 1975, which he then. said <laughs> was a Jewish plot against him. Which <laughs> was like, you know, I mean, this guy's life really could have been played as a farce as well, because he was just no. such a.
0: I'm not. I'm not surprised that episode didn't make it into the show. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to be yes. honest. But in the maybe the sequel. Mm. But, um... mm. P- perhaps the sequel. Uh... We'll, we'll also address another issue uh, that, that that this show has raised. Um, mm. Should we just talk about Jewface? I mean, I, I apologise for using that phrase, which I, I really don't mm. like. But I, I'm just quoting none other than Sarah Silverman, who's mm. not only been taking on the squad in her eponymous podcast of late. Uh, she also mm. called out what she referred to as Hollywood's tendency to cast non-Jewish actors to play. Jewish characters. Uh,
3: does she have a point? Definitely. I think um, she, um, you know, she echoes what the British comedian David Bedil was saying about Ridley Road. In fact, the, it's probably the only, you know, the, a Jewish drama with Jewish characters. There's nothing now of a role nowadays where you would think about casting somebody who wasn't. Jewish, although I guess you could argue I don't think Rory Kinnear is a fascist and uh, they've kind of gone for that. But I think, I mean, when you look at the, the actors um, and in specific uh, in particular about Ridley Road, mm-hmm. you know, the main character is playing someone whose whole skill is that she can pass as non-Jewish, which of course is weakened somewhat by the fact that the actress herself Playing the character isn't Jewish, mm, although I do believe she has a, a Jewish grandfather, which does a know, Jewish grandfather, which makes her
0: Jewish according to the Nazis and according to the state of Israel. <laughs> Wow, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely one Jewish grandparent. Um, yeah. But that does raise the, you know, the, the, the bigger question then, can, can can non-Jews it. successfully play Jewish characters? I, I read one review of Rachel Brosnans' performance in, in The Marvelous Mrs Maisel, which was, mm-hmm. you know, almost universally acclaimed, but one review mm-hmm. said said that she didn't feel Jewish. And what what does that even mean?
1: Mhm. Yeah, um, and and
0: you know we've we've moved on from the days when actors would wear prosthetic noses to play Shylock.
3: Uh, yeah. So, um, but but you have an interesting example with someone like Eddie Marzen, who is here playing uh, Solly, like mm-hmm. the, um, the 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 who who is heading the sixty two group. And Eddie Marsan isn't Jewish, but he's one of those actors that everybody thinks is Jewish. Does he off. I mean, I don't know if you saw. There's a lovely British comedy called Sixty Six. Mm. Yeah, and he plays uh, a Jewish shopkeeper again in East East London. And I, and he's like literally all the time. People, you know, assume he's Jewish from these roles he plays. So you know, Jason Biggs, everyone assumes, assumes he's Jewish. You know. mm-hmm. Well,
0: Eddie Marsan also played a, a a Boston Irish Catholic uh, boxer in in Ray Donovan, and, um, mm-hmm. and nobody accused him of um, of Irish washing or uh, Irish face. I think it uh, it, it, <laughs> it 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 does seem a very um, uniquely Jewish issue, uh, a Jew face to 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 yeah. make oneself, you know, it's the old um, funny you don't look Jewish line,
3: yeah. But I do think it is a valid point because, you know, so many times you see a character that is very strongly written as Jewish, Mm. played by someone who is clearly not Jewish. You know, I mean, I don't, it's just all the time. It's like, maybe we actually do need to move on from this now. You know, there are plenty of good, great Jewish actors out there and we just need to be a little bit more sensitive. Mm, maybe it could be that Sarah Silverman is looking for more roles and she's kind of getting a bit annoyed. I don't know. Uh,
0: maybe she wanted to play uh, Joan Rivers rather than uh, Catherine Hahn in that uh, upcoming limited series that's, uh, that's being filmed.
3: I would have loved to have seen that.
0: That would have been good casting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, uh, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Listener, that's your show for this week. Make sure to tune in to Haaretz Weekly on Monday, and we'll be back with another episode of Haaretz Weekend next Friday. Until then, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.